Last week was a wonderful week of prayer focus. We had people praying all over this church. Many were prayed for by name. We were praying for nations, for friends. It was a wonderful time to gather together. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will continue to stir that fire for prayer. C.H. Spurgeon called prayer the boiler room of the church and how we need to keep that boiler room going or we'll become tepid and cold so easily. So keep praying. Well, what we do after the prayer focus is we have a Bible focus Sunday, which is today. And really, there's no better place we can go to understand how we should think about God's word than Psalm 119. Some people call it the Mount Everest of the Psalms, and it is a massive place to go. So please open up your Bible, Psalm 119. We're going to be in verses 17 and on today. In that pew Bible, again, it's on page 538. You're going to want to keep that open the entire time. We're going to be going back to that text to see what it says. Every week we offer this, but we are serious. If you do not have an English Bible at home, we want you to take that as a gift because we can think of nothing more valuable for you to have than God's word. Honestly, we want you to have that in your own hands. Well, this past September, it may have slipped your attention that Andrew Van de Beel died at 94 years old, better known as Brother Andrew, God's smuggler, you might know him as. But what's significant about this man isn't so much that he lived to be 94, but that he didn't die sooner. His life was often in danger. The first instance he had with his life of danger was in 1957. He drove his blue VW Beetle to the border checkpoint in Romania. Now, this was the height of the Cold War. There's a lot of tension going on. And his beetle happened to be filled with Bibles. Now, he knew there's no way to hide them. There's no way to fool the border guards. And so he put a couple of Bibles out in plain view in hopes that if they were seen, they would be confiscated and waved along or sent back, but he wouldn't lose the whole stash that he had. Providentially, the guard looked at his passport and waved him on. And for the next 20 years, he, he went across the border many times and never once had a Bible confiscated. And so this led to many trips in his famous smuggler's prayer. He prayed, Lord, when you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things that you do not want them to see. So what would cause Brother Andrew to risk his life, his freedom, to bring Bibles across the Iron Curtain. It was because the persecuted church said, what we need most are Bibles. Bring us Bibles. Now the Cold War has passed, and yet still today, did you know that in over 52 countries it's illegal or it is restricted to have a Bible? 52 nations today. In fact, at one point in England... Translating the Bible into English was a capital offense. You would have been burned at the stake. I, I wonder if we would risk our lives to have a copy of God's word in our hands. I, I wonder if we believe it is so precious to us that the copies we have will build our lives on what it says. My friends, God's word is sufficient for all of life. And my prayer today is that as we look at God's word, we will 
value it even more. It'll be precious to us and we'll trust it even more. And I pray that for some of you, that will happen today for the very first time. Well, we're going to read God's word a second time. And when we stand publicly, what we're saying is that we're coming before something of highest value and respect. And by doing that publicly, we can display that. And so I invite you to stand for the second reading, Psalm 119, starting in verse 17. And this is Holy Scripture. The psalmist writes, Deal generously with your servant so that I might live. Then I will keep your word. Open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. I'm a resident alien on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. I am continually overcome with longing for your, your judgments. You rebuke the arrogant, the ones under a curse, who wander from your commands. Take insult and contempt away from me, for I have kept your decrees. Though princes sit together speaking against me, your servant will think about your statutes. Your decrees are my delight and my counselors. Friends, the precepts of the Lord are right, and they cause the heart to rejoice. So welcome it today. Please take your seats. So we come to another passage of Scripture, and here's the big idea. There are four cries. Four cries of the psalmist here, and through those four cries, Psalm 119, 17 through 24, shows you that God's word is sufficient for even the hardest situation. It is sufficient for even the hardest situation. His first cry, verses 17 and 18, it's a cry for illumination. Then the second cry, a cry of devotion, verses 19 and 20. Thirdly, there's a cry for protection, verses 21 through 23, and it culminates in this cry of exaltation in verse 24. Now, before we look at that first cry, we need an orientation of this Mount Everest of Scripture. Now, as you can tell, it's a long passage. It's, in fact, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. But what sets it apart is in its length. It's a, a poem of love and delight and confidence in God's word. And so when you read and when you consider this psalm, the Holy Spirit means to produce in you the same confidence, the same delight that the psalmist has. Now, it's interesting how it's structured. It's an acrostic poem. So that means that all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used one after another. So there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and that makes up 22 stanzas. Now, if you notice, each stanza has eight verses. And then each stanza in the original language, it starts with that same Hebrew letter. Now, if you look in most Bibles above each stanza, it tells you what letter it starts with. Um, verses 1 through 8, it says Aleph. And sometimes the Bible will actually have a little mark there that's a Hebrew letter, Aleph. Then you have the next stanza, 9 through 16, is Bet. And then our stanza, Gimel, then Daleth, Hey, and it goes on through the 22 letters of the alphabet. The reason it's done this way is because this was intended to help you memorize it. Now you might think, memorize it, that's a big, massive task. Many of you know the name William Wilberforce. He was an MP from Yorkshire from 1784 to 1822. 25 years old, he started his career. He's best known for leading to the abolishment of slavery in the British Empire. And he loved poetry. He memorized much of poetry, but 
As a Christian, he he took particular delight in Psalm 119. Now, he lived in Hyde Park Corner, and every day when he walked about a mile from there to where he worked in the House of Commons, he would recite the psalm out loud, the entire psalm. And he would meditate on what it said, all 176 verses. You might think, well, that was a a day long gone. Well, I know of a, a young man who after three years has just finished memorizing the entire psalm. I know three other men who are in process of of memorizing the psalm, and they would each tell you it has been worth the hard work. Not just to have the words there, but it's created in them a longing and a, a delight in God's word. Now, one thing about the psalm is it features eight synonyms for the word Bible. Now, different translations will use different words, but in general, the the words that we come across are word, law, commandments, judgments, testimonies, statutes, precepts, and ordinances. You can just look in every stance, you're going to find almost all of them are going to be there. Now, each word is slightly different in its nuance of what it's trying to communicate. It's helping us see the Bible is deep and it is wide. But what's interesting is he never defines those words. He just mixes them together. They're interwoven with the everyday life situations. And every situation you can imagine comes up in the psalm. What it shows us is that God's word is completely sufficient for all of life. Many of you know in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says it so clearly. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, did you hear that? Complete, equipped for every good work, lacking in no way. Oh, the word of God is totally sufficient for every crisis, for every concern, for every celebration of your life. And really, what else would we expect from a book that is breathed out by God? You may not realize it, but a leading cause of unhappiness is sin. A leading cause of sin is not knowing and living by this book. Tragedy is that people know about the Bible, but they don't love it. They don't build their lives on it. They don't trust it so deeply that they will bank everything on what it says. I heard it said years ago that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Well, in our stanza, Gimel, the psalmist is going through a very hard time. Look at verse 19 real quickly. It says that he is a resident alien on the earth. That means he's an outsider. Now, Christian, you you can relate to that, can't you? You don't quite fit into the way things are here. And then he doesn't just feel like an outsider. He has enemies. You see them in verse 23. They're, They're called princes who sit together. They're speaking against him. Powerful leaders, they know about him, and they're plotting to destroy him. We see a little bit more about them backing up in verse 21. It says that they are arrogant. They're the ones under a curse. These are people who care nothing for God, and they think that they answer to no one but themselves. Now, there have always been people who do not like the Bible, but here we meet people who conspire against those who love it. Their passion is to ruin people who want to follow God's word. So you can tell the psalmist is experiencing great trouble here, but he's experiencing it because he wants to live according to God's word. 
Well, let's look at his first cry in verse 17. He says, deal generously with your servant so that I might live. Now notice how he identifies himself. Your servant. Now this isn't just a hired help around the house. The literal word is a slave. What it means, he has no rights anymore. He has given his life completely to another. Now, many times in the Old Testament, the one offering a prayer to God would refer to themselves as this way. It communicates humility, communicates reverence, but it's also acknowledging God owns my life. Now, being God's slave is not a place of cruel bondage. On the contrary, it is a place of joyful and liberating life in God. So here as a slave, he is boldly and humbly crying out to God to deal generously with him. And all of the Lord's servants know that God is kind and that he's generous. We know what James 1.17 says, this incredible trait of our God. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is a generous God. But I want you to notice he's not crying out for riches or prosperity. Throughout the Psalms, this kind of language, deal generously, is asking God to deliver the prayer from the trouble. It's a cry of a persecuted man who has walked with God long enough to know that he knows that God knows what is best for him. So he is now explaining why is he crying out for this. He wants this generous dealing so that I might live. He's not talking about living his best life now. He's not talking about health or prosperity. There's something more urgent and precious that he wants. He wants to live for one reason. Look at the end of verse 17. Then I will keep your word. He wants God's generous dealing so he can be obedient Oh, this is so different than what comes into our minds. When we think of a generous feeling from the Lord, I think most of us think about a life of ease, comfort, but that's not biblical thinking. Driving his cry is his deepest longing. He wants to remain steadfast in faith-supported obedience. So when he says, I want to keep your word, what he's talking about is committing God's word to his memory, He's talking about contemplating it and then living it out. See, he knows that true joy and true delight comes through obedience to God's word. And actually that leads to an assurance of God's love. The slave of the Lord knows that obedience is a way to express his love for his master. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. That is the place you want to be, don't you? In the place where you know God loves you and you know he's receiving your love. What an incredible place to be. And so our cries tend to be, Lord, take this away. But he's crying, help me to obey in the midst of the trial. And he knew that this would only lead to a greater understanding of God's love. Here we have a persecuted saint, and he's teaching us a valuable lesson about what matters most in life. Now, we can gain a better understanding of what he means by generous dealings by looking at verse 18. 
Look what he prays for. Open my eyes. That's how God would deal generously with him. Open my eyes that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. So what he really needs deliverance from are his confusion, his doubts. You see, the persecutors are not creating doubt in him. They're exposing what was already there that he didn't know existed. See, there's an enemy far worse than arrogant princes. Doubt and anxiety are rooted in a lack of understanding of God's truth. It's rooted in not trusting him. And so he's crying out for illumination, for opening of his spiritual eyes so that he can understand God's instructions. Now he knows that God's generous bounty can make this happen. He, what he really wants, the bounty he's seeking is the wondrous things from your instruction. Christian, do you come to God's word knowing there are treasures here? There are delights to be had. Every time you open it up, is that what you come for? Do you come hungry in the morning? Do you come hungry on Sunday mornings when we gather around the word of God? That's what he's praying for. Maybe we should be praying that same thing. What's amazing is he's asking for help to obey, but he knows that obedience will bring opposition. But he says, that's more precious to me than all the trouble in the world. I want to joyfully obey and keep your word. But for now, the difficulty of the situation has clouded his thinking. Many of you know that. It's like a mind fog. You just can't quite make sense of what to do. You, you know God is good, but you can't find your way through it. And so he's saying, please illuminate this text to me. Now, illumination is that wonderful, aha, moment. You know, when it just jumps off the page, you think you've read it a hundred times, but it's just alive today. And the aha moment isn't just, oh, now I get it. It's now I want to live it out. It's the Bible applies to your current situation. So when God illuminates his word, he just draws you in. You gaze intently upon this text. These words are riveting for you. You wrestle with the implications. You are dying to know what other wondrous truths are hidden in here. This comes when God opens your spiritual eyes. You see, God's instructions do place restrictions on us. But good restrictions. Things like, you shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not commit adultery. But there are also wondrous things in in God's law. The Bible is filled with scores of ways God shows his goodness. And God knows that we need constant reminders of his very great and precious promises. And that is so that we won't wander from his commands. Christian, you need to remember in the night what God illuminates in the day. In the good times, fill your mind with as many of God's promises as possible. So when the trials come, when the persecutions come, you have an army of wondrous things to bring to the fight of faith. And if you're in a fog right now, dear Christian, beloved of the Lord, cry out with the psalmist to open your eyes to behold the wondrous things so that you can live joyfully even if that trial is not lifted just yet. So his cry for illumination is starting to show us that God's word is sufficient for even the hardest situation. It is what we should long for when times times are hard. And this grows our confidence that if it's sufficient for that, for evil people coming against you, it is sufficient for any situation you can find yourself in. But next he gives a cry of devotion. His confidence is building. Now think about this. When you're born again, 
God qualifies you for a heavenly citizenship. He delivers you from the miserable kingdom of darkness into which you're born. And then he transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And there are no dual citizens in God's kingdom. You are his citizen alone. This is an honor beyond comprehension. But the darkness does not take kindly to your new status. That's what he says in verse 19. I am a resident alien on the earth. Sojourner, a pilgrim. You see, an alien couldn't own land in this time. An alien did not have the rights of a citizen. We've lived around the world, Argentina, Costa Rica, Los Angeles. And one thing I heard in all the places I went is that the crime and corruption was always because of the immigrants. It was always them. In fact, just last week, I spoke to a man on the street and he said, Lincoln used to be such a great place, but now all these immigrants are bringing their problems. And I thought this happens in every culture. It's always them, isn't it? It's never me. But in a more profound way, when you belong to God, Christian, you are now the problem. You you are a resident alien. No matter where you go on this earth, you will never fit in. And this is so important that you come to grips with this. When you follow God, the world will treat you as an outsider, as an alien. Years ago, Pastor Jim Boyce said, if you can't feel at home here, it may mean you are living far from Christ. Or worse, you don't belong to him. Now, that may sound harsh, but listen to how Jesus said it in John 15, 19 through 20. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The Apostle Paul, he taught this truth to new converts. When he's coming back from his missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, he visits these churches and he's strengthening the souls of the disciples. This is Acts 14, 22. He's encouraging them to continue in the faith. And how does he do that? Does he say, hey, you got this. You're a great group of people. This is how he strengthens them. By saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, making sure these new believers knew that the road to heaven must include tribulations was key to their encouragement and to strengthen them as disciples. And this is still true for believers today. Now, Christian, being an outsider here means that you're an insider there in God's kingdom. Now, our international friends know a bit about what it means to be an outsider. And I'm speaking about myself, too. Obviously, I'm not from around here. There are challenges that you face in leaving all that's familiar to you. There's the the challenge of the climate, the language. You think you speak English. It turns out you don't. (laughs) You speak American. You, You learn the challenges of just trying to be accepted. People aren't as accepting of you. It just reminds us, my international friends, be reminded you don't belong here. Let that awkwardness remind you this is not your home. We're just pilgrims passing through. The rejection that being a resident alien turns him to God. And that's what all trials are designed to do. And if you wonder, how can I endure this? The rest of my life to be an alien? I don't know if I can handle that. 
Paul from prison wrote in Philippians 3.12, I press on to make it my own. Here's how, the, how it works out. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Ultimately, Jesus Christ will not let you go. Now, there are arrogant princes plotting against him because of his commitment to following God's ways. But their heat only serves to increase his thirst for truth. And so he cries out in verse 19, don't hide your commands from me. He knew there was no other place to find life. In John 6, Jesus taught a very hard teaching and many people were abandoning him. They were walking away. So he turns to his disciples and he said, will you go also? Listen to what Peter's response is in John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's just merely saying what the psalmist said here. Continually, I am overcome with longing for your judgments in verse 20. Literally, the psalmist is saying, I am crushed with longing. Now, this morning I fed my dog and I, I have to have her sit on the mat while I get the food out because she will devour it as it's coming out. And she's, she's attention. She is fixed. And she's almost trembling and she's drooling. She is longing for that food. The longing of the psalmist is not bad. It is the longing that you have for oxygen when you've held your breath and you think, I can't go another second. It's that my soul is crushed. I am shattered by the intensity of my longing. Oh my God, stir that up in all of us. A longing for God's word. What do you crave? What do you long for? Is it a holiday? An escape? Look what his longing is for in, in verse 20. For your judgments? Is that what you crave? It's the judgments of God. It's things that God has spoken, that he's written down. That's what helps us navigate difficult times. The written word of God provides guidance and hope that you need even in the hardest situation. So belief in the total sufficiency of God's word produces in us a confidence that you can keep walking whether you're harassed or hated because of being a resident alien on earth. Trusting the total sufficiency of God's word will create a continual doubt, suffocating longing to know God's word. It's the longing that says, if I don't get more, I am finished. It's an eagerness to open up God's word every day. It's an anticipation that the next Lord's Day, you'll have God's word open and taught. Now, I know people who move from churches with light sermons, short sermonettes, and they went to churches with hour-long expositions. And one man told me he loved it. He said, the problem wasn't the length of the sermon, it was the problem of his attitude about it. Other people said they struggled to take in the whole exposition but they delighted in whatever nugget they could take away. And then they were determined to wrestle with whatever they got and live it out. When you're crushed with longing for God's word, the Bible becomes the center of your life. It is the highlight of the worship service. This cry of devotion is is rather convicting, isn't it? It exposes that we're rather complacent toward this precious book. But at the same time, strangely enough, it it starts to awaken in us a hunger for more, a longing for more of it. And that leads to this third cry in verse 21, the cry of protection. He says, you rebuke the arrogant, the ones under a curse who wander from your commands. This cry of protection begins by a reminder of what God does to the enemies of his people. A rebuke. This is a, a threatening and fearful voice of Yahweh. 
Listen to how it's described in Psalm 29, this awesome voice, verses 4 through 9. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of splendor. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Indeed, Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh hews out flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh causes the wilderness to tremble. Yahweh causes the wilderness of Kadesh to tremble. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The voice of God was heard in Mark 4:39 as Jesus looked into that terrifying storm and rebuked the wind he said to the sea peace be still the wind ceased and there was a great calm the voice of Yahweh laughs in Psalm 2 verse 4 when the nations set themselves against the Lord and his anointed you do not want to hear the voice of the Lord's rebuke With a simple word of command, God stops the arrogant and the ones under a curse. Or in his wisdom, he delays the arresting rebuke so that he can use their evil for your good. But one day, they will be rebuked by the Lord. Now here we get a glimpse of who's persecuting the psalmist. You have these arrogant ones. They're bloated with a sense of their own superior self-importance. Proverbs 16:15 says, "Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished." Now sometimes people don't come across as haughty, but in their hearts they reject God's authority. And it comes out when you gently, lovingly tell them that the Bible says their lifestyle is a sin. But they are the cursed ones. That that is because they reject God's ways. All those who reject God's laws live under a curse. But in their pride, they think they know better than God about how to live their life. Many were taught the truth as children, but they wander from his commandments. They they go astray. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, On that day of judgment, when they stand before God, he will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. That's not the place you want to be. Now, you might think of these people as being those vile, those, those browed, braggadocious kind of sinners, but really, the arrogant ones that are cursed are the ones who rely on good works to get to heaven. Listen, now Galatians 3.10 says it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Friend, that's you. There is hope. Listen to what he went on to say two verses later, or three verses later, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Oh, my friend, turn to God. Cry out for protection from his judgment. Stop rebelling against God and his ways. Reject your imaginary autonomy and ask God for forgiveness and gladly accept that he is your gracious master and live as his slave with freedom. When you trust God and you abandon all efforts to earn your place in his kingdom, God will lift your curse. Because of faith in Christ, 
He credits you with Christ's perfect righteousness. You go from eternal curse to eternal blessing. Come to Christ, dear sinner. Come today. This cry of protection continues in verse 22. He says, take insult and contempt away from me. Now they've been staring at him. It's been awkward because he's a resident alien, but now they are speaking out insults and contempt. It's a crushing weight on him. They're challenging his integrity. They're taunting him. They're mocking him, slandering him. Look, if you've had people speak against you, if you've had people treat you poorly, start making lies about you, you know how crushing this can be. But here's the reason why he asked God to lift this. He says, for I have kept your decrees. Now, he's not bragging. He's just simply saying, look, that first cry I made that you would deal generous with me. It's happened. The proof is that I'm actually walking in obedience. I want to do that. I'm not perfect, but I'm making forward progress. And that introduces us then to these faceless enemies in verse 23. These princes who are sitting together speaking against him. These are the leaders of the nation. And they're on their thrones of judgment. And they have powers to threaten, to imprison, and to kill. And at this moment, they're deliberating how they're going to use their power against this godly man. Now, they could twist existing laws, or maybe they'll pass new laws to entrap him. We see this happening today in our own world. There are laws coming against what's called conversion therapy. And this gives arrogant princes a legal reason to silence or to arrest Christians for telling people who want to know how to live a sinful lifestyle and find hope in God's ways. Just think about what happened to Daniel. Okay, the king's officials hated him. And so they conspire together and they put a law into action that prohibits anyone to worship anyone except for the king for 30 days. Just 30 days. But it didn't take more than 30 minutes for Daniel to break the law. He's 80 years old at least. And he responds with amazing boldness. This is what it looks like when someone is continually overcome with longing for God's judgments. He knows what's going to happen to him. If he breaks the law, lions then. Daniel 6, 9, what does he do? Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done before. Okay, Daniel, why don't you just pray quietly in your own heart? Or close the windows. Because he knows he's a a slave to God. He doesn't belong there. He knows his allegiance is with Yahweh. And he knows to whom he can appeal. And so, of course, these high officials, they find Daniel making petitions and pleas before his God. And they spring their trap. Daniel goes into the den with the hungry lions. And he stands firm because he trusts God. And God intervenes. In this moment, he shuts the mouths of the lions. In verse 22 of Daniel 9, he says, I was found blameless before God, not perfect, but faithful. His faith was proved genuine by this terrifying trial. Now, there's good reason to think that this psalm may have been written by Daniel. You can imagine that Daniel was praying these words with the windows open, knowing these high officials are plotting to throw him in a lion's den. But even if Daniel didn't write this, it's such a good example of what this kind of life looks like in action. The psalmist is fully aware of their scheming. And the temptation to become anxious must have been intense. But look how he deals with the assault in the biblical way. Look at the second part of verse 23. 
your servant will think about your statutes. He's not going to mull over again and again what they might be doing, what they might be saying. He's not going to mull over again how he should have done this or that. He's fixed his mind on God's statutes. And look again, he says, I'm your servant. I'm again, I'm your slave. I'm committed to your ways. And how do slaves pray? Like Jesus taught us, Matthew 6, 9 through 10, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, countless people say those words, but God's servants understand it to mean that God is sovereign, not them. That God's will ought to be done, not their own. That they are slaves in God's glorious kingdom. God is not a genie in a bottle to make their puny little kingdom somehow thrive. Now, how can you think about God's statutes when anxiety comes knocking on your heart? When it has you by the throat and it's taking you down and holding you under the water, what do you do then? Oh, dear saint, it's not simplistic, but it is simple. Philippians 3, 6 through 7 puts it in these words. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. By prayer and supplication. By prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now he says here, your servant will think about your statutes. Verse 8 of that passage goes on to tell you that the Lord's servants will still think about his statutes. What will they think about? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And it will take every ounce of your mental capacity to think about that and not the problem. But the fact that we're good at mulling over the problem again and again shows that you actually are well-trained in the art of meditation. You're well-trained in thinking about things, aren't you? Now you just have to say, I'm going to take all that expertise and apply it to God's word and not the problem. Now, some of you, I know, you know intimately the enemies of despondency and despair. It's a fierce battle. And it gets right inside your head. It affects your body. It interrupts your sleep. It kills your appetite. It's ruthless. It is unrelenting. But this is what God has given us. This is the rescue plan. It is simple, but it is hard work. And you will have grace every step of the way. See, the Lord's servant makes the choice to follow God's ways, even when he doesn't feel anything, even when there's not an immediate fix to the problem. Faith takes God at his word. It trusts that God is working even if you feel nothing. Faith will rise up and it'll say, I must trust God. There will be grace to help me press on. Oh, beloved, your faith may be tested by the plans of arrogance. They may have serious consequences for you. But remember, any persecution is designed by our loving, wise, and powerful Lord. He wants to show you how sufficient his word is. The great 19th century London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he knew what it was to suffer. He had trouble with gout and it was made more acute by his anxiety and his depression. He struggled with a lot. But listen to what he said. You could not have believed your own weakness had you not been compelled to pass through the rivers. And you would never have known God's strength had you not been supported amid the floodwaters. 
because the psalmist chose not to think about what the princes were planning or what they had decreed. He refused to mold uh, over it as a slave. He fixed his thoughts on God's all-sufficient statutes. All these cries come into a resounding victorious cry, the last one in verse 24. Do you see that God's word is sufficient for any situation? Is God awakening your heart that you can trust this book? If it is, this is where your heart goes. Verse 24, your decrees are my delight and my counselors. The cry of exaltation with a U, exaltation, is jubilation. It's triumph. It is saying the testimonies, the things that God has written down, they're true. They're written down so I can always go back to them. They don't change. And they delight his soul like when he sees the rescue workers coming right at the nick of time. And these, these are like friends who will always guide you and comfort you. Not like Job's friends. The best thing they ever did was they stayed quiet for seven days. But when they spoke, all things went wrong. Isn't it interesting that you can look at old photographs and you can have a measure of joy and, and delight by looking at them? But they will never give you counsel on what to do now. They will never help you to know how to get through this situation. But God's word is always that way. So it's my delight. It is my counselors. Now, this last cry doesn't mean that the villains are gone. It doesn't mean the situation is resolved. You may be like Daniel's three friends. They're watching that furnace be turned up hotter than it's ever been. The, the guards are coming to take them to throw them in. But Yahweh's servant is immovable in his confidence in God. He's sustained by the word of God. You see, God has already illuminated his word. That illumination has increased your devotion. That devotion grows a trust in God's protection. And in all circumstances, it culminates in this cry of exaltation. Now, whether your body is consumed now and death comes or you're preserved and you await death at a later time, the one who trusts God's word knows that it is sufficient for any situation you'll face. And you'll give this exaltation like Paul said in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the furnace, there was a man. And the man was the angel of the Lord and he will be with you whether you go into the furnace or whether you stay outside. We need to exalt together. We need to lift our voices in song. I just invite the music team to come back up. We're going to declare that Jesus Christ is the very word of the Father. We want to celebrate that he has protected us from the final curse. He's lifted the judgment. He secured our devotion to him. He is our gracious master and our God. So let's stand together and exalt in him.